Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today we'll hear about a song called Tom Dooley. It has everything. A love triangle, grisly murder, a manhunt, and a hanging. Hang down in your head and try. Oh boy, you're bound to die. And I speak with a ballad singer from southwestern Virginia. She and her husband managed the pandemic and new parenthood by live streaming stories and lullabies. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. And we'll hear from another ballad singer who uses the tradition in protests and marches. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Today we're airing an encore episode, which includes a lot of music, like ballads, lullabies, and folk songs. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, you little baby. When you wake, get some cake and ride them pretty little horses. If you've listened to Inside Appalachia over the past year, there's a good chance you've heard music by Anna and Elizabeth. That would be Anna roberts Javalt, who's now based in Brooklyn, and Elizabeth Laprell, who grew up in rural retreat, Virginia, just a ways down the road from me. I used to sing this song, Heap of Horses, to my son when he was a newborn. And when I got to interview Elizabeth several years ago, I made sure to ask her for more recommendations of songs to sing to babies. Like this one, from Elizabeth's 2004 album, Rain and Snow. Well, now my son's going on 10, and Elizabeth's got a son of her own. And she's still singing. She and her husband, Brian Dolphin, moved from Brooklyn back to southwestern Virginia just before the pandemic hit. As longtime performers and new parents, they started posting weekly live streams of stories and lullabies. We do have a short, we have a short live stream tonight. Um, just one song. One little song. It may or may not be... Uh, a song by Tears for Fears called Mad World. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out places, bright and early for the... I spoke with Elizabeth to find out more about why she first started singing and how that's changed with parenthood and a pandemic. We'll start by hearing one of her big influences, Texas Gladden of southwestern Virginia, singing a version of the ballad Barbara Allen. Away down yonder in London town, that's where I got my learning. I fell in love with a nice young girl. Her name was Barbara Allen. So it started for me at a pretty young age, but I think my first memories of ballads as such, like knowing that they were stories and being interested in learning them and actually learning them and singing them would have been around 10 or 11 years old. I learned Barbara Allen and I sang it at like my summer camp talent show. Go tell him I am coming As she went walking through the room She heard some bells ringing Can you tell me about what led you away from rural retreat for a few years? I mean, the short answer is actually just touring. (laughs) 
um, just being a musician and trying to live as a musician. So I, I went away for college. And uh, after four years there, I went back to rural retreat. I really missed the mountains and um, wanted to focus on music and didn't have a, a better idea than going back to live on my parents' farm. But sometimes even mo more of the year than I was at home, I would be out traveling uh, on tour, mostly around the U.S., but also going overseas. So I was doing shows in the duo, Anna and Elizabeth. God said, Hezekiah, a message from on high. You better get your house in order. Or you must surely die He turned to the wall and weeping We see him there in tears He got his business fixed alright God spared him 15 years There's a little black train a-coming Fix all your business right little black train coming and it could be here tonight Anna moved from southwestern Virginia to Baltimore so we would do a lot of our work uh, around there as well and then from Baltimore she went to New York City to she moved to Brooklyn and then um, about a year after she moved to Brooklyn I'm also moved to Brooklyn to uh, to be with my now husband, uh, th then boyfriend. So we uh, spent a couple years um, based out of the city, pretty different environment. And again, you know, touring a lot and, and coming back to Virginia just for visits. A couple of years ago, you moved back. What was it that brought that brought you and Brian to, to Southwest Virginia again? Uh, having our kid, we thought, well, hey, you know, why don't we go... We spent a couple years in New York. Why don't we go to our place in Virginia? You know, we could be on the farm. That seems like a nice place to have uh, a young child and we'll be near my parents, uh, Noah's grandparents, um, for a little while. And so when Noah was just a couple months old, we, we went down south and moved. And then couple months after that, uh, big pandemic. <laughs> we had kind of thought we would travel a little bit more um, last year and uh, also maybe look for another place to live, potentially a smaller city, but still, you know, someplace a little close, maybe between New York and Virginia. But we, did, we didn't have the opportunity to look for that because uh, we were in Virginia and we pretty much stayed there and, and hunkered down. Hey, I'm a little bit, I'm interested to hear you elaborate a little more on the pandemic and just how it affected you all as, you know, as parents of a young child, as performing musicians, um, whose income depended in part on being able to tour. What's, what's that been like? Well, just m mostly enormous changes, um, not least of which just, you know, getting married and, and having a kid is, is really huge, um. So even before the pandemic, I had done a pretty big pivot to not traveling as much. When Noah was a young infant, I really wanted to be home and I just didn't have anything planned. So we were, we were probably going to, we were going to start getting out of our kind of parental bubble in March uh, of 2020. Um, so we didn't. Um, I, I've been doing, I'd already been doing, uh, lessons, um, online. And so I just made that my whole thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, I've actually really enjoyed, uh, teaching a bit more and teaching one-on-one. -on -one. That wasn't something that was in my skill set necessarily. I'd done a lot of workshops, but not a lot of private lessons and I like them. So I think I'm going to continue that even as things open up more. My husband and I started doing a weekly live stream. So uh, sometimes we read stories aloud and, and mostly we sing, you know, one to three songs just on Facebook uh, for whoever is, is tuning in at that moment. Bless you. That's gross. You sneeze on your daddy. Hello. Hello. We are here. It is 9 p.m. We're going to do 
story mm -hmm. and song to get ready for beddy. We're so tired. We're so tired. We're so sleepy. tired. We just rub our eyes down sometimes. <laughs> and then hopefully we get tricked into thinking that that feels really good when our eyes are so closed, closed. and sleepy. Or we turn our heads away. Okay. And we fight it. Yeah. Oh, this is called so you would not be alone. starting to get the Facebook memories from this is from one year ago. And I, I look at, you know, it's, it's us a year ago holding like our itty bitty, you know, bread loaf size baby <laughs> instead of, you know, now we just wait till he's asleep because he has normal sleep hours now. Yeah. I don't know. It's also just very hard as a parent. It's hard to be isolated just in your family. Um, it's really really, really, really clear to me how much you really need community uh, as a parent and how the care of a child really should be spread um, over more people than just two. <laughs> hmm. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. I'm totally losing my melody. I'm just so excited. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. He loves it. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Elizabeth Laprell and her husband Brian Dolphin just released music with a new group called Duran. It pulls together a lot of different threads, from Appalachian ballads to Eastern European choral music. I met her on the mountain. What you're hearing is the Kingston Trio's version of the famous American ballad Tom Dooley. Somehow, this song from shortly after the Civil War struck a universal chord 60 years ago when it topped the Billboard charts. It has everything. A love triangle, a grisly murder, a manhunt, and a hanging. Reporter Heather Duncan set out to explore why ballads like Tom Dooley still capture our imagination. Hadn't it been for Grayson... I'd have been in Tennessee. In my hometown, Tom Dooley was personal. I'm from Wilkes County, North Carolina, the mountain home of the man whose real name was Tom Dula. It was here that he was arrested for killing his girlfriend, Laura Foster, who was rumored to be pregnant. And from the way people talk about it, you might think these events happened yesterday, not 150 years ago. The Dula family, if you talk to them, Tom Dula is innocent. If you talk with the Foster family, Laura Foster is almost, you know, sainthood. That's Karen Reynolds, who wrote a long-running outdoor drama about the tragedy. 
Her great-great-grandfather owned a store in the Elkmont community where the murder happened. She went to school with doulas and fosters. When I wrote characters, I knew how those family members felt about things. I was privy as a young girl to listening to the actual family members give their take on the story. Today, you can still start a debate about whether doula's other married girlfriend, Anne Melton, was truly the guilty one. My hometown paper even campaigned for the governor to pardon Tom Dula 130 years after the murder. My own family was caught up in the drama, too. My dad was a guitarist, fascinated by old ballads, and I tagged along when he visited the graves of Tom and Laura. A few years before he died, Dad wrote his own song about Laura Foster for Karen's play. The mist of the morning hangs low in the sky A whippoorwill calls hello goodbye Down a path the horse makes its way the maid of the morning's wedding day. It all made me wonder, how do ballads keep these long-ago events so immediate? You may hear it the day after, or ten years after, or two centuries after the event. But the ballad is like a time capsule. That's Bill Ferris, a folklore professor emeritus at the University of North Carolina. He told me that ballads first came to Appalachia from the British Isles, where for centuries they were printed on long sheets of paper called broadsides. Those sheets were hung on a long stick, and if you bought one, the seller pulled off one sheet and gave it to you. And those were often composed even before hangings or public events. And as soon as the event occurred, the ballad would go out and be sold all over the countryside. These songs, says Ferris, were in part a way to share explosive local news. When we look at broadside ballads, those really could be compared to social media today in that they were a quick and easy way to spread news. And they were filled with all kind of gory details. They often depicted tragedies, ranging from hangings to train wrecks to weather events like tornadoes and hurricanes. Ted Olson, a balladeer and Appalachian Studies professor, says ballads helped communities process these tragedies. When disasters happened, people had to psychologically cope with the aftermath, the death and the destruction, the interruption to people's everyday lives. Ballads provided a way to cope with those circumstances. Here in North Carolina, the verses were rapidly published in newspapers. Then musicians set the words to popular tunes and themes that everybody already knew, like noble outlaws or betrayed love. This made songs easy to remember, so they spread even among those who couldn't read. Otto Wood the Bandit, a famous ballad about a Wilkes County man with a genius for prison escapes, is a great example. Singers Cranford and Thompson recorded an early version in 1930, a month after Wood died in a gunfight, using the tune and theme of the Ballad of Jesse James. Then their guns began to roar Through his windshield bullets tore Eleven from revolvers in his head And the last from ranking went Into Otto it was sent Then the news was heard that Otto Wood is dead Trevor McKenzie wrote a book about Otto Wood set for publication this fall. You have this ballad that is to the tune of Jesse James, which people know, and it recounts this larger-than-life character who has just died in this sensational way. Sort of Old West-style events happening in the middle of several parked cars on the streets in Salisbury, North Carolina. So why do ballads like these reverberate so long after their newsworthiness has faded? For folklorist Ted Olson, they offer a bridge to other times. The reason why I personally love to sing them is that I feel connected to people and places far in the past. They may have had the immediacy and personal opinion of social media, but they required more thought, length, and poetry. And I can't imagine reciting a Twitter statement in 100 years or 200 years. I think that a ballad is communication that has universality in its essence, or it wouldn't survive. Today, these stories are kept alive in my community largely through yearly outdoor dramas, written and performed by locals. Before she wrote the Tom Dooley play, Karen Reynolds invited descendants of the main characters to share family details. When locals come to see the play, they can tell. They'll have their 90-year-old grandmother that was just dying to see this that still remembers her family talking about this. And they'll all look at me and say, this is the way I always heard it. 
And that's all I need. That satisfies me. Wilkes County has embraced these criminals as part of its cultural heritage. Trevor McKenzie played in the band for some of the productions of the Otto Wood outdoor drama. There's sort of a, a community infrastructure around these ballads of celebrating these things as community events. They brought people together who many of them had sort of a background in deep Wilkes County roots where they could connect with these stories in a way that could convey them with a sort of power. What I've come to realize is that, unlike the news, ballads aren't just a gathering of facts, and they aren't just entertainment. They're part of the long-term process of creating a shared identity. That's the root of their staying power in my hometown. By telling and retelling these stories to each other, arguing back and forth, we're also saying, this is where I'm from. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Duncan. Hang your head, Tom Dooley. Hang your head and cry. Kill poor Laura Foster. You know you're bound to die. Heather Duncan is one of our Folkways reporters. We should add that Trevor McKenzie, who we heard from in that story, is also a member of our Folkways reporting project. Coming up, we'll hear about a project that tells the history of the West Virginia mine wars through music. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Oh, say, did you see him? It was early this morning. He passed by your houses on his way to the coal. He was tall, he was slender, and his dark eyes so tender. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. I was feeding the children when mostly came running to bring us the news. This year, our Inside Appalachia team has been looking back at the largest labor uprising in the United States. The Battle of Blair Mountain took place a hundred years ago in southern West Virginia. It was the culmination of over two decades of fighting between coal miners and their employers over the workers' right to belong to a union. Today, we know that series of conflicts as the West Virginia Mine Wars. That history is told in a collection of ballads called Blair Pathways. Asheville-based musician and folklorist Sarah Lynch Thomason collected the songs and produced the album. Inside Appalachia Folkways reporter Rebecca Williams talked with Thomason about the project. The lot of the miner at best is quite hard. We work for good money, get paid with a card. We scarcely can live and not a cent more since we're paid off in checks on the company store. Sarah, will you tell us about the song, The Company Store? It was very common for coal miners and their families to live in company-run towns. And so the house that you rented, you paid rent to the mine owners for that house. And then the dry goods store, or the store you would have gotten your food and your, and your clothes and your textiles, that was also run by the company. They keep cutting our wages time after time. Where we once had a dollar, we now have a dime. While our souls are near famished and our bodies are sore, we are paid off in checks on the company store. The song The Company Store was submitted as a poem um, to the United Mine Workers Journal, which was run by the United Mine Workers of America, the union, uh, back in 1895. And it was written by a coal miner named Isaac Hanna. And this poem is a long complaint about how criminal <laughs> the mine operators were in, in running company-run stores. What other things were miners complaining about back then? Working as a miner in the coal industry in the late 19th and early 20th century was really dangerous work. Things like roof falls or exposure to methane gas and, and the risk of explosions, all of that was much more common 
than it needed to be. And so, you know, we know that thousands and thousands of people died in the industry just during this period. Why did you decide to include an Italian labor song on Blair Pathways? Stornelli di Asilio is written by an Italian anarchist named Pietro Gori. Many people don't realize that a large portion of the people who were mining coal in West Virginia in the late 1800s, early 1900s, were Southern and uh, Eastern European immigrants. And those immigrant cultures and communities also brought far-left politics. There were also significant numbers of African-American mining families in these coal camps, right? Yes, some of these miners had come up from the Deep South through recruitment campaigns or just looking to get out of uh, sharecropping systems. Some of these African-American workers had come into the state um, helping to build the railroads. These workers were often also very invested in unionizing and came into elected positions in the United Mine Workers of America. One of the major strikes of the West Virginia Mine Wars took place on Paint and Cabin Creeks in 1912 and 1913 where there were numerous deadly battles and skirmishes. Tell us about Walter Seacrest, who lived through that strike and wrote the song Law in the West Virginia Hills. As a child, he actually lived in a strike camp. And as an adult, he joined the union and he started writing songs about his experiences of the Cold Wars. These miners banded together on one warm sunny July day. They laid aside their shovels and picks And they struck for better pay Then the company gun thugs came Officers from all around Drove the miners from their house and home Kicked their wives and children down The song mentions wives and children So we know that it wasn't just male miners involved in these strikes. You included a song written by a woman from Kentucky in 1932. Listen, friends and comrades, I have some very sad news. I am locked up in prison with a lonesome jailhouse blues. Lonesome Jailhouse Blues was written by a woman named Aunt Molly Jackson, and she wrote this song when she had been organizing with the National Miners Union, which was a communist union, and uh, was put in prison for that organizing work. Many women uh, were organizers and were really the backbone of strikes. So how were women involved in the paint and Cabin Creek strike? Women um, would often go down to the train stations and um, harass or sometimes attack or at least shame the replacement workers who were coming in. And women would also hold down picket lines in front of the mines. And on top of that, they were doing things like committing sabotage. Women uh, would go and tear up, you know, the rail lines so that trains exporting coal from the region couldn't run. In 1921, these decades of conflicts boiled over into a full-scale war during the week-long Battle of Blair Mountain which is often called the largest armed insurrection in U.S. history since the Civil War. What strikes me about these conflicts is that you just have to get to a place where you feel like you have no other options. To do something like risking your life, essentially by going to war, really means that you have nothing else to lose. I noticed that your album Blair Pathways doesn't include a song about the battle itself. Why is that? You know, I think there's different reasons why there may not be a song. Events like this are also traumatic, and people want to forget about them. People did die in this battle. Um, It was a battle that people had to be pretty secretive about if they were involved. It's not something you necessarily wanted to let all your neighbors know about. So I think there would have been reasons to to not talk about the fact that this, this enormous uprising had taken place. One of the last songs on the album is called Hold On. It was one that you and others sang as you marched to Blair Mountain back in 2011. 
Why were you marching to Blair Mountain? One goal was to promote the need for sustainable jobs in West Virginia. The other goal was to try and save Blair Mountain because Blair was endangered of uh, being strip mined for coal and this really important, you know, historic battle site and it needs to be preserved. So the march uh, took about a week and we were in 90 to 100 degree weather and music and song uh, became a really powerful part of the march. People started to really understand how songs could bring people together and really vindicate and enliven uh, the work they were doing. You helped lead the singing on the march. Why did you choose this song in particular? It's such a great song to sing in groups, and it's really structured in a way where you can create new verses. Back in August of 21, did what had to be done. It comes from African-American traditions, and in the civil rights movement, verses were adapted to be about that movement. Sarah, what did you take away from studying the mind wars and immersing yourself in this music? I think I came away with a better understanding of how complex these conflicts were and how important it was that that people know that they happened. Without that labor history, we wouldn't have things like the eight-hour workday and safety standards at work. And we wouldn't have any of those things if all these different labor movements hadn't taken place. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this and to revisit this history in time for the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain. My brother was a man in man, toiling almost day and night. Deep down in those old cold mines, far away from God's sunlight. To this valley came my union home. We should mention Sarah Lynch Thomason was also one of our Folkways reporters back in 2019. If you want to learn more about the Blair Pathways Project, go to our website, wvpublic.org. Talking about ballads, songs that tell involved, often tragic stories that play out in the imaginations of listeners. People have been singing and listening to these songs for hundreds of years, and today they still fill the same function. So do books, like Road Out of Winter, a near-future science fiction novel that plays out across an Appalachia where spring never comes. It's written by Appalachian journalist Allison Stein. Road Out of Winter is technically a sci-fi novel, but it describes a future that feels frighteningly real. And it reads like an uncanny reflection of the Appalachia that I know, probably because Stein is rooted in the region, in southeastern Ohio. I spoke with her about Road Out of Winter. Here's our conversation. Well, Allison Stein, thank you for coming on Inside Appalachia. A few of us here at the show have read Road Out of Winter and had some pretty interesting discussions about it. So... I'm excited to talk to you about it, but for readers who don't know the story, who don't know this book, um, maybe we should start out by introducing them to the main character. So um, would you mind reading something that kind of describes the main character of Road Out of Winter? So here's a little bit about uh, Will and her situation near the start of the book. Weed needs a warm, humid climate. Always before, that was what we had in southeastern Ohio. That was our gift. One of the only things that grew well in our old, abused soil, the earth mistreated by years of coal mining and fracking and mountaintop removal, was marijuana. That was what Lobo said. But the outdoor harvest the year that Lobo and Mama decided to leave had been a bad one. A wet spring, if you could call it spring at all. Lobo and Mama had lost their plants that grew in the wild, in neglected lots, in deep forest, in patches of unused land behind highways, in woody acres belonging to the state or accessible only by canoe. 
Some of the plants that Lobo had hiked in on a pack and planted at twilight in the illegal ground had been swept away by rain. Other plants never took. The earth was too wet and chilled. Their roots rotted. Still other plants froze, their leaves folding, blackening, then falling off. Or they were eaten young by desperate animals or the always desperate insects. Every time Lobo went out in a canoe to check on the wild plants, he returned with his head a little lower, his back more dejected, his jaw tight. I knew he would chew his food silently and angrily, lash out at Mama, kick something down the stairs. I didn't go up to the farmhouse for dinner on those nights. I didn't want to be the thing he kicked. Outdoor crops were half our income, but after the first cold year, after the loss of everything wild, we didn't even try to plant outside. All we had left was the grow room in the basement of the big house. As a teenager, I had avoided going in there. It hurt my eyes. I felt like it would stick on me, like the scent of weed, be obvious. I thought, like sex, once I had been down in the grow room, people would know. And they did know, but for other reasons. It was a small town. There were rumors that were true. People came across state lines to buy from us, and they talked about it, about us. And I'll stop there. So already this is an engaging story about an engaging, interesting person. So I'm familiar with your journalism and, and your work going back several years. What was it that inspired you to write this particular novel? Well, I think with books, because they take so long, it's really a question of sort of gathering elements that sometimes might seem disparate over a period of sometimes years and really just stitching them together. So for Road Out of Winter, those elements uh, were started with a dream I had. I'm the kind of writer that I get a lot of ideas, uh, but when it's a dream, I feel like you really need to pay attention to it. So I dreamed about a greenhouse in snow, the image of that, uh, at night, with two characters inside. And I knew they were two young people, and there was a child with them, but it wasn't their child. Somehow I knew that in the dream. So I'd been carrying that image with me for a while. And uh, then we had a very late spring in southeastern Ohio. If you're familiar with Ohio, you know, the weather can be very strange. Um, but this time it snowed in May, you know, late May. And I just remember thinking, well... What if spring never comes back? And those two elements uh, became Road Out of Winter. So for readers who are curious, could you, could you tell us a little bit about kind of what the book is about and, and what happens? Uh, Road Out of Winter is a novel about a young woman who's grown up on her family's illegal marijuana farm in rural southeastern Ohio. Um, after two years without spring, Spring just never comes back, um, and her family, her folks have already left, and so she decides to leave the farm and head to a warmer place uh, in California. But along the way, um, she and a couple friends she's picked up run into trouble, including a man who needs her skills of making things grow and doesn't want to let her go. Um, it's funny that, I mean, everyone does call it speculative, and it does have a wild element, you know, this is not exactly what's happening in our world, but I think it's close. You know, I think the, the climate chaos that we're experiencing is close. And I certainly wrote this before the pandemic, but it was, it was kind of, um, uh, scary to see the pandemic happen, you know, right before the book came out and see that kind of collapse of infrastructure and, and, you know, lack of the little we had be there to support us. Yeah, I had just read the book when the Colonial Pipeline shut down because of the ransomware attack, and the resulting panic buying was was frightening given the context of your book, and, and it's lived in my head since then, and not necessarily just through fright. There's a lot of elements to this book, and, and part of what strikes me about it is you have your characters are in some ways... They're reflective to some degrees of different um, people and different aspects of ourselves maybe within Appalachia. And then they kind of go through different communities, very much like a reflection of the Appalachia that I know. How did you shape your thoughts on Appalachian identity and community that are found in this book? 
Well, you know, community was very important to me in the book, as it has been in my life, you know. Um, my rural community in small town Appalachian, Ohio, basically helped me raise my son when his father left when he was a baby. Um, I described my town as like my husband and my son's father in many ways, because, uh, you know, they were there for me, strangers became friends and my neighbors were there for me the way that no one else was. And so, you know, helping others is essential to the book. You know, so is knowing when you have to cut your stakes and save yourself. But uh, the main character, Will, basically takes in three and a half people she doesn't know very well. And some reviewers had criticized that about this book, that why would this woman take in this man she barely knows and help him? And I thought, well, reviewer, you've obviously never lived in Appalachia. You know, Um, you help your neighbor. You help the stranger who needs you. A lot of people would would struggle to find hope in this book. It's pretty bleak at times. And yet there is this closing scene that grew out of that dream you had. Would you mind reading a little bit from from the closing scene? It was quiet in the grow room, I remembered. And though I preferred working outside, feeling the sun-baked soil in my hands and the light warm on my back, the dirt in the basement room was warm too, heated by the lights. When I cupped a tiny plant with its root webs and thick, dark globe of dirt, warmth radiated through me. I would hold each plant in my hands longer than necessary each time I transplanted them to a bigger container. It was like holding a baby chick, something alive and beating with hope and potential. I imagined I could feel them breathe. I imagined that it mattered that I was down there, that I mattered. And when I was in there, in the grow room, I couldn't hear the shouting from the farmhouse above. I couldn't hear my mama crying or smell the vomit or smoke or worse. I was making medicine, I told myself. I was making medicine. I was a witch, I had told myself, when I was even smaller, not too much older than Starla, the first time my mama had taken me out to Lobo's farm to meet the magic man. I was a witch girl, and only I knew the secrets of the wild plants. They whispered to me, like wind through the long grass, slippery elm bark for sore throat, bone knitter for sprains, jewel weed for poison ivy, elderberry for cold. I broke a pebbled leaf of spearmint for Lisbeth to chew the first time we met in the fields behind the elementary school. She trusted me, took the sweet taste from me, the bright surprise of lemon balm, the peppery wild onion. Only I knew where the nettles grew, gathered willow bark by the stream. Only I could heal the maiden's heart, find the warmth in the cold, cold room, deep underground. I carried Jamie. Over the hills, the greenhouse glowed in the distance. Although I love ambiguity, do you mind talking a little bit more about sort of what that ending signifies for for Will and the world around her? Publishing a, a novel is a, is a very strange process. <laughs> and um, one of the parts of the process is that um, if an editor is interested, they'll call you and kind of talk with you a little bit about the book. And But one thing that my the editor that we ended up going with said is that she really feels like this book um, is about the power of the matriarchy, you know, the power of a new way. And in this book, aspects of the new way might be led by women. Um, so many apocalypse stories and dystopia, you know, there's, there's a sort of man at the head, um, the father figure, who's like the leader of the group. Um, but it's more rare to have a, a woman who's the leader of the group who ends up being the survivor and, and without giving it away, you know, the women do survive in this book. And I also believe that they survive after this book, you know, um, I think the end is a new beginning And so much of the main character's private journey has been because of the way she's raised, you know, growing up with like illegal work and secrecy, you know, so much of her journey has been struggling to trust people and struggling to not just want to be alone and do everything herself. And I think the end points to her being ready to accept help, Um, not only with this outcast family that she's made, 
Um, but with others, we get sort of a hint of some other people, another group close by who may be good people. And I think that in the morning that they will help her. And I think that she's ready for it. It's a tantalizing um, view of the future for, for Will. Allison Stein, thank you so much for being with us here on Unsat Appalachia. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks so much for doing this. You know, um, so much of my journalism seems like correcting people's incorrect views of Appalachia and poverty and, and rural life. And um, I'm really glad that you're out there fighting the good fight. Allison Stein's second novel, Trashlands, was just released. It's set in a similar dystopian future as Road Out of Winter. I pre-ordered it from my local indie bookstore. We're going to close out our show with a story from one of West Virginia's most famous storytellers, Ruth Ann Music. Music was known as, quote, a public relations agent for West Virginia folklore. She brought energy and passion to documenting the state's rich storytelling tradition. And this led to five books and dozens of short stories. Now, decades after music collected these tales, they've been told and retold by storytellers across our region, including Eileen Evans. She's based in Thomas, West Virginia. Here's Evans telling one of music's stories called Big Max. Little girl, if you were mine, wouldn't do none but starch and iron. Big Max is a foreman for a large construction company in Cleveland, Ohio now. He was a brown-skinned black man, about six and one-half feet tall, weighing about 250 pounds. So it's easy to see how he got his name. And wherever he goes, it's not long before his name follows him. And when he worked in the mines, Big Max was known for his strength. He used to run from the Osage mine where he worked to his home, ten miles each way. And one time, a motor car fell on a man and pinned him from the waist down, and Big Max lifted that car all by himself, and saved that man's life. He could load more coal than six ordinary men, and he would stay in the mine for days, for as long as a week sometimes. And it seemed as though nothing could hurt him. One day, there was a bad cave-in in the section where he was working, and everybody was killed but Big Max. And when the men found him, he had dug himself halfway out. Some of the miners looked on him as a kind of god of the mines. But Big Max left the coal mines, and this is the story of why he told Ruth Ann Music's father. He said, after the big explosion that closed off Section 5 of the main run, all the men were either killed or accounted for except one. He was never found. His time card wasn't punched in or out, and the mine officials would not pay his wife the welfare money because they thought he had deserted her. Well, anyway, I opened up the section and went in first to check and see if it was still hot. Our main job was to set in the new beams and clean up the section so new track could be laid. And after I checked the place completely for gas, I started helping the other men set the beams. In one of the subsections was a bad place, and since none of the other fellows wanted to chance putting in the new beams, I said I'd go ahead and set in the first one for them. I went back into this dark section and was getting ready to put in the first beam when one of the fellows come back to help. I said, oh, so you're not afraid after all? He said, no. And it was then I noticed that I'd never seen him before. He didn't look like a miner, at least not like a healthy one. His skin, even though it was covered with coal dust, was milkish white, and his eyes were set deep in his head like deep pools. And although he could do as much work as me... He was just a bag of bones. And after we put up the first beam, I started cleaning the place for a second beam. And the man who was helping me grabbed the shovel and said, Don't put that post there. Put it here. He said it real mad, like, so to keep it down an argument, I started doing what I was told. And I had cleaned out about a foot of loose coal and slate when I hit something. It looked like a boot, like a man's boot. Just as I turned around to tell my helper that I'd found the remains of a man, he disappeared. I didn't particularly think about it because I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me since I hadn't been to bed for three days. <laughs> and then, too, I thought he might have got scared and gone back. 
Well, anyway, I reported the body to the authorities and went home. And in the middle of the night, I was sleeping soundly when there was a knock at the door. I went and opened it and discovered it was the same fella at the mine who had been helping me. And he said, thank you. Thank you for helping me. But now my wife can get what's coming to her. And then he disappeared again out into the night. I got dressed and went down to the mine to see just who this fella was that I'd discovered. He was a man who'd been missing. They could tell by his miner's tags. Well, I left that mine. And I have never and shall never set foot in a mine again. Today's episode was truly rich with sound. I think these stories give us things to hold on to, you know, especially during tough times like this pandemic we just came through. Yeah, and it makes me think of Tom Dooley, a timeless ballad, particularly the version by the Kingston Trio was my favorite. It's it's such a classic song that has a catchy sound and yet has this really dark tale that when you really listen to the words, it's kind of a tragedy. Yeah, Alison Stein's novel, Road Out of Winter, is kind of the same way. It's really dark and talks about these characters going through rough times, but there's also richness and joy, and you see people holding together in ways that get them through a difficult world. I feel like that's the reality on the ground for a lot of people in Appalachia. Times aren't always easy, but we hold on to these things. We hold on to each other to get through it. Well, you guys, until next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Elizabeth LaPrell, Brian Dolphin, Anna and Elizabeth, Sarah Lynch-Thomason, Grayson and Witter, and the Kingston Trio. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups, and Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens, and Xander Alloway also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.